Good morning. I want to encourage you to see the film on Martin Luther. I had a chance to see it last week. It's narrated by Dr. Roland Bainton, who is a renowned theologian at Yale University, and he goes over to the Lutherlands and comments on Luther's life from the places where it took place. It's a very excellent film. Before we begin this final lesson, and it's really hard to believe it's the fourth time already that we've been together, I want to wrap up a few loose ends and also make some announcements about things that you might be interested in reading or seeing. Tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 13 on NOVA, there's a program that relates to our discussions called Was Darwin Wrong? And the review I've read indicates, of course, that the program will take the side of the evolutionists and say, no, Darwin was not wrong, but there have been some changes made in his theory. Well, that's all right if that's how they want to put it. One of the things they're going to say, for example, is that not everything evolved. Well, that's getting a crack in the door, you see. Not everything evolved. And the example is the oyster. <laughs> oysters did not evolve, according to tonight's program. Oysters have always been oysters. And that not everything changed, according to present evolutionary theory, over long periods of time, but that very often things happen very suddenly. Well, that's very good. That's progress. And I think eventually uh, we're going to get back to calling evolution what it is. And that is a theory of science which will undergo changes over the years and will even become more scientific as we go along and less of just a pure faith. Then another topic that came up last week and that I want to comment on briefly is the Shroud of Turin. An excellent article on the Shroud and what uh, research has revealed about it is in this November issue of Guidepost magazine. I'm not sure how many of you get this. It's a beautiful magazine put out by Norman Vincent Peale. And it summarizes the work that has been done by scientists on the Shroud and gives both sides of the question of whether it really is the Shroud or whether it isn't. The interesting thing is and I alluded to this last Sunday that there is a lawsuit going on about the Shroud of Turin, which is reported in Science News magazine of a week or so ago. And it says a federal district judge in Detroit has ruled that a Michigan publishing company can go ahead and distribute a book called Verdict on the Shroud. The book whose publication had been enjoined a day earlier by a county judge contends that the Shroud of Turin is physical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It was written by Kenneth Stevenson and Gary Habermas and is being published by Servant Publications of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Now these two men, Stevenson and Habermas, are members of the science team that has been investigating the Shroud for the last few years called the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And the reason a county judge said it should not be released is because other members of the team who investigated the Shroud disagreed with what these two men said and did not want the book to come out and give the impression that the scientists have agreed that the Shroud is the burial cloth of Christ. But now the other judge says, no, it is legal to publish this book. There's freedom of the press and all this, and people should make up their own minds. The official report of the science team on the Shroud has not yet been released, and there's no, question, there's no certainty as to how soon it will come out because one test that is being performed on it is not completed. In fact, they have not yet received permission to do the test, 
and that is to date it with the radiocarbon-14 method. The reason the method has not been approved yet is because up to now, it would have required a large section of the cloth to perform this test, but recent refinements in the carbon-14 method make it possible to perform the test on just a single thread of the cloth. And the team and representatives are in Italy now negotiating with the owner uh, of the shroud, an archbishop, I think, over there, to see if that can be done. And if that is done, then the final test will be performed and in some future date, uh, the committee's result will be published. And you can be sure that there will be two reports. There will be a majority and a minority report saying this is what we think and this is what the others think, which fits in perfectly with what we've been saying about the nature of science. It's never absolutely certain. But I like what uh, several of the people have already said because of the studies that have been made on the shroud. One of the members of the science team is Dr. John Heller. And he said when he was asked whether he thinks that the shroud is the actual burial cloth of Christ, he says that is not a scientific question. But if you want to know, I'm a Christian. He said I was a Christian even before I started on this shroud business. I don't think an artifact, per se, would have any effect on my Christian faith. But that doesn't mean it isn't a hair-raising thing to work on it. Another one, and this is Stevenson, the one who just published the book on the Shroud, he said, speaking for myself, and not as a spokesman for the team, from a faith standpoint, I do not need the Shroud. I don't need it to convince me of the reality of the resurrection or the reality of Jesus Christ. That was settled very personally for me at a specific point in time. On the other hand, many scientists, authors, and scholars have begun their studies of the Shroud from a point of utter cynicism and agnosticism and have become devout Christians as a result of it. But no one's faith should be built on a relic. And one final comment, and I go along wholeheartedly with both of these scientists have just said. Another comment was, in the long run, people believe what they want to believe. The miracle of Easter is not finally provable. Perfect uh, summary, really, of what we've been talking about. And in fact, it brings up a story that I want to use to introduce this morning's uh, consideration on what is the role of the church. And that is a story that Norman Vincent Peale also told, and I don't know where he got it, but at least that's where I first ran across it. And that is that one year, billboards began to appear in the New York City area that read, Jesus Christ will come to New York City on Easter Sunday. Maybe you heard the story. Well, pretty soon people began to notice this billboard and wondering what kind of shaving lotion or whatever this is advertising. But more and more billboards appeared, Christ is coming to New York on Easter Sunday. And as Easter Sunday approached, people began to get a little more nervous because there weren't any products mentioned or anything else. Maybe this is the real thing. Well, Easter Sunday came and every church was packed. However, as people looked around, they noticed that nobody was in his own church. Why not? because people felt with conditions in their congregation the way they are, if Jesus came to New York on Easter Sunday, he certainly wouldn't come to their congregation. <laughs> well, 
the question is, do we feel that way about our own church, our denomination? And if so, let's take a look at what reason and faith and this consideration of where the dividing line is between the two can teach us about life as Christians together. And I want to begin with some comments that scientists made to me when I asked them whether they go to church and why or why not. And the first one is by a man by the name of Dr. Westfall in Europe. And he says, please distinguish between religion and the church. This was his answer on whether to go to church or not. It is still true today that many people retain membership for superficial reasons, for baptism, for marriage and burial. A man can be a good scientist and be very religious. But I must add something. I understand religion in a very wide sense. To be religious means to be in possession of a spiritual conviction that responds to the needs of people living together, a social concern. So the first point I'd like to make in the words of Dr. Westfall is that there is a distinction between religion and church membership. And people that you talk to, when you ask them whether they're religious, will usually say yes. When you press them a little further and to see whether they also have church membership and assemble with other Christians on Sundays or some other day, the answer very often is no, and then they start giving excuses. And an answer to this question that I want to read for a final comment by a scientist before we start looking at it ourselves as a group this morning is by Dr. Hansen, who was president of a university in this country. And it turned out that Dr. Hansen was a Lutheran. I didn't know this before I talked to him. He says, once I went to one of the campus ministry groups on the campus of the college where we were meeting, where we were asked by the minister to evaluate the program for their youth. He told us that the week before, they reviewed one of these new mod films from a downtown fine arts theater. This is part of their youth group meeting. They also sent a letter to some activist groups supporting a cause they happened to have, and on and on. I asked him whether he happened to touch on the classical Christian concepts, and he said they have a tough job selling that. This is the minister saying that. They've had their fill of church and Sunday school and all of that. I said, Reverend, I think you're doing a beautiful job of selling Christianity down the river. Now here are the two viewpoints. Dr. Westfall said we must distinguish between church and religion. He said religion ought to have a social concern. And Dr. Hansen said some of these social concerns of some of the churches that he's been visiting are so far out that they have nothing to do anymore with Christianity. Now where is the middle of the road? Where do we belong? Well, it seems to me and uh, I mentioned, I think, last Sunday that one of the programs on Sunday morning is called Dr. Eric Butterworth Speaks. I don't know if you've heard him or not. I 
Margaret sent for a, a transcript of that talk that he gave that Sunday on the Bible. And I'm not sure I have it with me, but nevertheless, I recall vividly what Dr. Butterworth said. He reached the conclusion, in fact, he said he was talking about the Bible that morning because a lot of people have been asking him about it, and so he's going to give a little definitive thing on what the Bible really is. And he ends up with his own conclusion that the Bible really is not to be taken that seriously, and certainly not as the Word of God, that it contains noble truths and that it can help us in our daily lives. But in the final analysis, we still have to use our own judgment as to whether parts of it are true or whether they're not. Now it seems to me that wrapping those three viewpoints up of Dr. Westfall, Dr. Hansen, and Dr. Butterworth, we had better decide as a Christian church that the Bible is the word of God. And if it isn't, then there really is no reason for calling it a church in the first place. Because too many churches that even call themselves Christians are nothing but book review clubs. In fact, in many places, the Bible will be on the agenda only every few weeks, and in between, it will be Schultz and Eitzen and who knows what else. It's a great books course. Now, how can that happen? How in the world does it happen that a church which calls itself Christian and that bases its teachings, so-called teachings, on the Word of God will eventually slip away from it and finally end up by being something other than a champion of the Bible? Well, I thought that what we might do is to put down what we might agree here are the main reasons for the existence of an organized church body in the first place. We agree, certainly, that God wanted the church to exist. Jesus mentions the church. He says, I will build my church. Obviously, he wants us to have them. Now, why? Well, I think what we've just been saying about the Bible should be number one. The church is there to teach the word of God and to do it effectively. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. And this is exactly what I've just been referring to, uh, of what Jesus says about his church. Jesus is asking Peter, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, good for you, Simon, son of John, for this truth did not come to you from any human being. Now, some people say, well, Jesus is not really saying that he is the Messiah. He's all only saying, Simon, you say that I am. But he doesn't say that. He says, this truth, he called Simon's confession the truth, not a tentative truth, not something that is open to debate, but an absolute piece of knowledge. And he says that kind of truth can only come from somewhere besides a human being. It did not come to you from any human being. It cannot be arrived at through reason. The church should not be a place where we figure out whether God's word is true. It's a truth that is revealed. 
He says it was given to you directly by my Father in heaven. Don't argue whether the Bible is God's word. You believe it because God says so. Otherwise, you might as well make up your own religion. If we can come to the truth by our own reason or through some scientific means, then anybody's religion is equally valid. That's why Jesus needed to ask Simon, who do you say that I am, so that he can reply and say, this is a divine truth that you don't argue about. And if a person says, well, I don't believe that, well, that's your business. I can't create that faith in your heart. I didn't create it in my own heart. And don't be condescending and say, well, poor you, and all this. Well, we're all in the same condition. God has to bring the faith for the truth to us. He says, I tell you, Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock foundation, I will build my church, and not even death will be able to overcome it. There is a great deal about why a church exists in just those few words. But there certainly is more. There are other reasons why the church is there. But I want to emphasize, if it's not there for that reason, then it has no biblical basis. We attended a meeting recently, well, it's a little while ago now, a large convention where People were meeting to discuss the purposes of the church and even the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. And to my utter amazement, in one of the sectional meetings, and this was a Lutheran convention, a woman asked the speaker, who was a professor in a Lutheran seminary, Professor, why is it that in a recent Sunday school convention, the speaker said that we should no longer teach the Sunday school children the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. There was a surprise in the audience. What? This happened in the Sunday school? Yes. And the speaker said, there is a colleague of mine here who is an authority in theology. I'm a church historian, he said, but he will answer your question. And this second professor got up and said, Madam, it would take me a long time to explain the reasoning behind that statement. But it is true because we have come in modern theology to the viewpoint that we should not regard the Bible as a paper pope. We should not worship the Bible. The Bible contains truths, but we should really not call it God's word. Now this, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. We had just come from a meeting of scientists and theologians at MIT where they were discussing how the Bible and Christian truths could be applied to modern problems of nuclear power and so on. And I just had to tell the speaker, I said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I said, I don't think you're giving up a belief in a paper pope. I think you're abandoning God's word. And during the break, some of the people came up and said, we should have said that ourselves because that's what's happening in our churches today. So it's happening. And I mentioned in a previous talk the book called The Battle for the Bible by Harold Linzel that does a very good job of showing how one denomination after another gradually slips away 
from the view that the Bible is God's word because they feel it's unscientific. It's not really academic enough and intellectual enough to hold up in modern life. And yet the people who are coming to the church for help are coming because we have the truth in God's word. I even remember an, a, a convention of Nobel laureates recently where the Nobel Prize winners invited theologians to discuss how science and religion could cooperate more closely. And one of the theologians they invited was from Yale University. And he gave an address in which he said that he himself has given up the belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the people were surprised to hear that. Why did we have this theologian here in the first place if that's what he said? He's given up his belief. So why are we listening to him? <laughs> that's going on. And if we apologize for the truth of God's word, then we have lost the main reason for being a church in the first place. But there are other purposes, of course, why the church exists. And I want to turn now to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. It says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more since you see that the day of the Lord is coming near. The purpose of the church that is mentioned there, that you cannot fulfill by just being a rational human being or even by studying science, and that is to meet together and have Christian fellowship. Often don't you hear the excuse, I can worship God out under the trees. Perhaps. But you cannot fulfill this requirement by standing alone under the trees, there where it says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are doing. So they had the same problem then. I remember one sarcastic agnostic I was discussing this with who said, I take my communion on Sunday morning in the neighborhood bar. <laughs> that may all be. In fact, he also had boasted to me that he had read the entire Harvard classics from cover to cover, and therefore he doesn't need anything else. In fact, he even sold me the entire Harvard classics for just a few dollars because he was finished reading them. <laughs> I haven't read them all yet. But the Bible says, don't give up the meeting together. And obviously the reason is that because in meeting with fellow Christians, there is mutual encouragement and strength, and certainly also the opportunity to worship. Now certainly worship can be done by yourself also. Worship can be done out in nature or wherever you are. It doesn't require a specific building. But the worship with fellow Christians has particular meaning, especially when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He doesn't say that, although it's certainly true, and we pray that he's with us too, but he assures us that when several are together, and I often wondered whether he used the number two or three 
because he realized that on occasion, congregations would become very small. <laughs> so we shouldn't worry that unless we have 50 or 100, Jesus will not be in the midst of us until that magic number is reached. Well, we could talk a long time about each one of these purposes. I want to mention, however, uh, one or two more. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we have the basis for the church is God's word. One of the outcomes is strength through fellowship and worship, but there is more to it than that yet. We have to be doing things. We have to be witnessing and serving. The church exists not just for a person's individual faith. That could be fulfilled, and in some cases in history, people try to take care of it in a hurry. If a person came to faith, why should he continue living at all? He might fall away. The story is told that Father Marquette, the missionary, came to this world and in his frustration that he was not able to reach enough heathen in a hurry, he would wait till it started raining and when a whole bunch of Indians were gathered together, he said, I baptize all of you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and then he had them executed. Father Marquette didn't get very old <laughs> with that kind of animosity building up because then they wouldn't fall away, you see. And what better water for baptism than directly from heaven? <laughs> That's called rationalism. He was a member of the Order of the Society of Jesus, where one of their unofficial credos is, the end justifies the means. <laughs> That's not really in their, I have a good friend who's a Jesuit, That's not really in their official document, but over the years, ever since the Reformation and when they began their counter-reformation against Luther, that is what was hurled against them, that the end justifies the means. And they became so effective after a while that the Pope even banned them. And the Jesuit order was illegal for a long time, but then later it got back into the good graces of the Catholic Church. So witness and service, but not forgetting that Lord gives the increase. We are not going to take care of all these items ourselves and say, now I want 500 added to the church today, so rain start already. And finally, the fourth uh, purpose of the church I'd like to list here, which could certainly take a great deal of time also because there are so many parts to it, and that is that the church is there to encourage people's individual gifts. And the passage there certainly is 1 Corinthians 12. And I don't want to take the time to read the entire chapter through, but it lists many gifts there. We should not be caught up in the idea that there are certain individual talents and gifts that are better than others so far as God is concerned. I remember this uh, 
I don't want to call it a mistake, but misguided enthusiasm as a child, because somehow we got the impression that if we became pastors or teachers, we were making better use of gifts or perhaps had gifts that were better than other people's gifts. Now that's all well and good to encourage people to become full-time workers in the church. And indeed, partly as a result of that emphasis, our congregation in Michigan has furnished over 300 pastors and teachers from the one congregation. And I'm sure it was that, that stress in each family, Aerosol Pastor Verden, I mean, if he has any talent at all, he should be a minister, whether he has direction in that talent uh, at all or not. And of course, the result often was that a person became a pastor or a teacher who would have done God much more service in some other field because he was not suited for that particular thing. There was always a rumor going around on the farm, if you were strong enough, you farmed. If you were too weak, you became a pastor or a teacher. Because supposedly, if you didn't have it in the muscles, you had it in the head, you see, something like that. So the gifts that God distributes are of various kinds. And a person can witness and can do a great deal, in fact, as much for God in any one of those fields as in any other one, each one to his specific talents. And I say that very emotionally because this topic of science and the church has, in the Lutheran church particularly, uh, had the kind of onus that if you study science, you're really on the fringe now. You're really leading a dangerous life with your faith because now you're dealing with something that God doesn't really like too well. He doesn't want you to monkey around with Mother Nature or whatever it was, I don't know. That it would be better if you didn't have that urge to take your toys apart and see what makes them work and all that. Just take it on faith and study the Bible or whatever it was, you see. No. God knows what he's doing and he gave each person his own enthusiasm and talents and you should pursue them and the church should encourage it and not count its success by how many people become certain kinds of things or professionals. And I think it would be good sometime if the church would make a list, for example, of what everybody in the church is doing and then make a big point of the fact that God works through many different talents. Now that brings me also to another question that frequently arises, and I'm sure that everybody has their own view on it. Should the church be in politics? I think next to science, the most distasteful profession in my youth that people pointed to was politics. They said, you can't be a very good Christian if you're a scientist, and certainly, in politics, you get into all that dirty dealing and all this, stay away from it. Well, if all the Christians stayed away from politics, no wonder it's a dirty business. I mean, somebody's going to be doing it, and if there aren't any Christians in it, then who is going to be in it? Now, that doesn't mean that the church should be political, of course, and make pronouncements on Sunday morning as to who to vote for for county executive. But each individual Christian should have convictions and be concerned and be involved just as much in politics as in any other field. And if you have a leaning in that direction, that's God's gift. We've, I think we've been stifling it far too long. The church officially has to stay out because in many, many cases in history, 
The church suffered severely because it identified itself with a specific political stance. I think in Russia, where we saw the relics of the church recently, the reason, one reason, why the church suffered a decline is because it identified itself with certain political stands. And particularly, for example, people like Rasputin and others who paraded as religious people and actually were suppressing the people. The same thing happened in France. Why did the French Revolution turn out so much more miserably than the American Revolution? I think one reason is, and in fact, some, in some cases, the same individuals were involved. Paine was our essayist here, and then he went to France and was very much disillusioned because the same ideas he espoused here did not succeed in France. So much so that he said toward the end of his life that the most miserable thing that was ever invented was Christianity. Why did he say that? Because I think in France, the church and the government that was in power, the monarchy, were so closely allied with each other that when one went down, the other one went with it. And this did not occur in the United States, uh, partly because of the very intelligent way in which our own leaders of the revolution kept those two issues separated. Not that they didn't want people to know about God when the American Revolution uh, progressed. In fact, the Declaration of Independence uh, makes a great issue of God giving us certain gifts and rights, but that the two shall not influence each other and that people shall have freedom of thought even though they are religious. While we might uh, stop there for a moment because I think people have very definite opinions on these things and I don't want to give the impression that what I'm saying here is the only approach to the subject but I feel that it is a kind of a logical conclusion to what we have been talking about these last few weeks. I would very much appreciate somebody now coming up with some comments of their own or even experiences that either enforce what we've been saying or maybe something that should be added before we put down the summary. You see, I've left plenty of time today for summarizing what we've been doing. I don't want to give a quiz. <laughs> Who has a good political story or maybe you even want to, uh, to talk some more about what we didn't have a great deal of time for last Sunday and that is miraculous healing. Any one of the topics that we've discussed. But I uh, want to make sure we can mention what involves these topics uh, today for sure. I saw an ad recently, or I think it was in Guideposts also. It's a very good magazine to read, by the way. It takes you about a month to go all the way through if you do one article or so a day. And there are some very wonderful personal stories in here. In fact, last week in class, in the seventh grade religion class, I gave each student a different copy of Guideposts. And I said, now I want you to sit there for 10 minutes, which was some miracle by itself. They sat there for 10 minutes quietly and I said read the first story in the magazine and then after 10 minutes we'll go around the class and you have a few minutes to tell it in your own words. And it was amazing. It was absolutely quiet, completely quiet during those 10 minutes while they were reading and you could see some of them uh, getting involved in these personal 
experiences of the people and miraculous uh, help from the Lord. And then they got up to tell them and we didn't nearly finish with 20 kids for each one to tell the story. They want to continue doing that. But one thing Guidepost mentioned recently was that they saw uh, somebody sent in a church bulletin board uh, that said, we do not invite all sinners to this church. We only have 500 seats. <laughs> and then there's the other one, of course, that if people say they don't want to come to a church because the church is full of hypocrites. And the reply is, there's always room for one more. <laughs> I mean, if we had the answers, we wouldn't need the church. Well, maybe you'll think of it as I put the summary down. If somebody asks you, well, now what have we done these weeks? Let's see if we can put it down in just a few statements. I think the first thing we should remember is that we use our reason to find out how God so if I want to know, and I remember one time uh, in a question and answer period, uh, a person asked, why are the colors in the rainbow, this was on a TV show, I was invited into New York City, it was a one hour show, there were four of us sitting in a panel. One was an expert on social security, another girl was a winner of a beauty contest. I don't know who they all were, and the people in the audience were invited to send in or to telephone in questions. And then at the end, uh, the producer decided which of the questions that was sent in was the most intelligent question of the whole hour, and that person would receive a prize. Well, the one that won, strangely enough, was one that a person called in to ask me why are the colors of the rainbow always the same? <laughs> well, the best answer, of course, would be God only knows, right? Because <laughs> but you can't come, <laughs> come out and say it just like it's true. God made them that way, right? Well, the answer scientifically has to do with the spectrum and how the water splits the uh, waves apart because of the different frequencies and so on. Well, that sounds very profound. It doesn't say why, really. It just says how we can explain it, you see. What is happening, not why. But it turned out that that person won the prize, which was a free electric razor, and the kid <laughs> was a 14-year-old kid <laughs> who won the prize. So we turn to our reason first. God put that there, too. If you want to find out about the rainbow, First, you go out and you study the rainbow. You do not go to the Bible first to see why the colors of the rainbow are what they are, because you'll come up with some rather strange answers that way. That's how they came up with the idea that the world was not only flat, but had four corners. They read the Bible, and they came up with the passage that said, you shall go to the four corners of the earth. They must have four corners. That's how they used to determine truth, to see what it says here instead of looking at it. I'm reminded of another little, since you're not coming up with stories, I have to fill them in. <laughs> there was a debate going on one time, and this was back at Luther's time. And here were the great theologians sitting around trying to decide various scientific questions. 
One of which was, how many teeth does a horse have? You've heard of the one of the angel sitting in the head of a pin. Well, this is a variation. How many teeth does a horse have? And they looked up in the church fathers, and they looked up Aristotle and all this. In the meantime, a little boy came in with a tray, a pitcher, and glasses of water for the people, and he heard him doing this. And after a while, after listening for a time, he said, excuse me, if you want to know how many teeth a horse has, why don't you go and get a horse and look at it and count them? Out, out. This, of course, a very unlearned young lad, and so that didn't count. But you see, that was the very birth of science, the idea that we should look, that it's not disgraceful to try something out and to admit you don't know so that you have to look. Aristotle didn't do that, you see. He said, if you want to find out the truth, sit on the floor, preferably with the lights off. And he even said, I think one time you should have as little clothing as possible so it doesn't bother you while you're thinking. And then think it out with syllogisms and everything, and you'll come up with the truth. No. If you want to know how God made something, use your reason and all the accumulated uh, experiments and whatever you can think about or read about. But the second thing we need to do is if there's a why question, we read God's word to find out why God made things. Now, sometimes it is possible to phrase a question with a why in the front or a how in the front. It's a little tricky. But a why question, ultimately, a why question is one that involves emotions and beliefs. And that you cannot reason out. When your reason fails, my father used to have a saying, and I guess he got it from his father. In English translation, it means when your reason fails you, was der Vernunft nicht fassen kann, das Beute Gott im Glauben an. That means, if your reason cannot grasp it, then commit it to God in faith. That's not a disgrace. That's not an admission of stupidity. That may very well be a sign of great intelligence. And our warning bell has sounded, so if you have to leave, we're in the summary anyway, so you won't be missing that much. And finally, I have only one more down, but the other one is for you if you have another thing down below there. And that is, ask God a miracle. That's why he's there. God wants to do things for us. But he's not going to do them unless we ask. He have not because he asked not, he says. And then, don't go about your daily lives just the way you did before. When you ask for a miracle, expect it. You've heard the story of the pastor where there was a drought. And he said, last Sunday, we had a prayer in this church for rain, and it has been requested that we continue that prayer today because there has been no rain, but we're not going to do it because nobody brought their umbrella. If you ask for rain, bring your umbrella. Otherwise, 
God doesn't think you're taking it seriously. Okay, that's the way I've summarized what we've been talking about. And I want, as I say, would like to leave some time for reaction, but if not, then I want to express my gratitude to this group and to the church for the opportunity of being here. It doesn't seem like four weeks, and I hope we can do it sometime again. Thank you very much.